0: I'd like to see 30 people in a VW bug. (laughs) I want to be sure that that can actually happen. (laughs) Good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to Ezra chapter 7. And we are returning to our series on Ezra and Nehemiah after a one week break. I had somebody else last week. The theme is on renewing God's community. It's the story of the regathering of Israel after they were exiled to foreign lands. And it speaks to us today because it holds principles for our own renewal here today, here in the church. So our focus this morning is on chapters 7 and 8, which tell the story of how this man named Ezra joined the returned exiles in Jerusalem and what he was commissioned to to do by the king who sent him, a ruler named Artaxerxes. Before we go to the text, let me just uh, set this account in the overall context of the book. The book starts, chapter 1, with the decree of Cyrus, who was the king back then. This is the king that gained control over Babylon and over the whole empire. That included the lands of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And Cyrus put this decree out there saying, I'm going to let you, you exiles, go back home and rebuild the temple. And so that's what they did. And then chapters 1 through 6 all center around the rebuilding of this temple, this place of worship, this place that's the dwelling a house of God, the meeting place between God and the people of Israel. This is the place where offenses for sinful man could be atoned for by sacrifice so that they could be in right relationship with God. And so building the temple, that was priority number one for renewing the community of God's people because your relationship with God is first and foremost where renewal is going to come from. So that's chapters 1 through 6, that covers about 20 years of the the return to Jerusalem. It was completed in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, who had become another ruler over the Persian Empire. So chapter 6 ends with a rebuilt temple, city of Jerusalem, which is still mostly in ruins, and the people living in the outer regions, out out around the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, if rebuilding the temple was the only important thing for renewing God's community, then this book of Ezra would be done. (laughs) Chapter 6 would be the end, and it would end with, and they lived happily ever after in relationship with their God. But it doesn't end in chapter 6. There are four more chapters, and that's because there is still something more that's needed than just... The temple, as important as that was, there's going to have to be more than a temple, more than a meeting place with God. And so enter the man Ezra, who you heard about two weeks ago when Pastor Dan preached on verses 1 through 10. Ezra is a descendant of Aaron, the chief priest. He's a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, we learned. And he was sent to Jerusalem with his commission from the king of Persia. And what Ezra was commissioned to do was the something more that was needed after the temple was rebuilt. And so we're going to learn about what that something more was this morning. We're going to start by reading the letter that King Artaxerxes sent with Ezra to Jerusalem, laying out everything that he gave him powers and resources to do. And then we'll think about the response of his, of his uh, Ezra's response to that letter. We'll read that too. And then chapter 8, we're going to dip into it here and there uh, to see what else happened after uh, or in the middle of all that moving of people to Jerusalem. So let's look at this, this uh, letter from Artaxerxes, and we'll read that and Ezra's response, and then we'll pray. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites of my kingdom Who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you, for you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand, and also carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money then you shall with all diligence buy bowls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given to you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, Make a decree to all the treasuries in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven "'Lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. "'We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, "'custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, "'the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. "'And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand,' Appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. This is Ezra's response. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Let's pray. What wondrous things you do, Lord, to preserve your church throughout every generation. What an amazing thing you do when you turn the hearts of the king any way you wish, whether that's to resist your people because you want to teach a lesson or to just pour out blessing upon blessing as you did with Artaxerxes. We just thank you that you're in control of all things. We thank you, Lord, that you are here today to speak to us freshly from what you did back then, long ago. And give us ears to hear it and hearts to obey and encourage your people that you are with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a phrase that's repeated six times in various forms in chapters 7 and 8. Most of the time it refers to Ezra, sometimes to the whole people of God and one time to anyone who seeks the Lord. The phrase is this, the hand of our God was on us. <laughs> Some version of that. Or it was on us for good. You don't see that phrase anywhere else in the whole book of Ezra except in chapters 7 and 8. And there it's repeated seven times. And so that kind of repetition is for us not to miss. It means that everything that goes on in this whole episode of Ezra coming to Jerusalem with a bunch of people, with all kinds of resources, etc., that is all because the good hand of the Lord was on Ezra and on the people that went with him and the people in Jerusalem. His hand was on there for good. And you heard the letter that the king wrote, and it was just granting all sorts of resources to the temple in Jerusalem. It was all given, as Ezra described it, to beautify the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. It was to make sure that the worship life at the temple was fully supported, uh, it's very much like the letter of Cyrus and the letter of Darius before, after him. This is the third Persian king who's opened his wallet <laughs> and given permission to just send people back home, back to Jerusalem and build this temple and make sure that it thrives, make sure that the worship life of Israel thrives there. Now, it's not because Artaxerxes was a believer. He was not. He says, it's your God. It's the God in Jerusalem. He just had this policy that, hey, whatever gods are in my kingdom, let's just satisfy them. Let's appease them all. And so, you know, that'll be good for us. That'll be good for the realm if all the gods are working for us. That's all he has in mind. But Ezra knows more than that. He says, God put it into his heart to do this. But, the, but he's open. The good hand of the Lord is upon them to make sure that the temple's taken care of. But there's something new in chapter 7 and 8 that we haven't seen until now. And it's a direct result of God's good hand on his people. And that is God's word, the scriptures. Ezra comes into Jerusalem described as the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes in for Israel. So he isn't the first priest to come to Jerusalem, but he's the first person to come with this kind of title, if you will, of man who really knows his Bible. <laughs> That's how he comes in to Jerusalem. In fact, he not only knows it, but he brings one with him. The king's letter mentions the law of God, which is in your hand. And his commission, his assignment from the king himself, is work this law, work this word into the life of the people in Jerusalem. He's going to appoint magistrates and judges and the ones who know the word. And if they don't know the word, he's going to teach it to them. So he wants this word to be sown into the life of the people in Jerusalem What's the takeaway from all that? When the good hand of the Lord is on His people, we get God's Word, and we get it into our lives, and we get someone to teach it to us. That is an evidence of God's goodness to us if we have those things. That sounds like a lot, a lot like a church, doesn't it? <laughs> because it is. Here we are, We're gathered from all the places where we live in this modern-day temple, so to speak, although it doesn't really look too much like a temple. We don't have, like, gold and silver vessels anywhere, um, and it looks a lot like a medical office building that's been turned into a place to meet. I don't know why, but it looks that way. But anyway, we're meeting, and here we are now. Somebody has stood up. We have Bibles, and somebody has stood up to explain it. That's the same thing that happened in Jerusalem thousands of years ago by the good hand of the Lord. When God's good hand is on us, He assembles His people, He brings His Word, He brings the teaching of that Word, so that Word can get into our life and we can change and grow and thrive. And that is how renewal is sustained. That's why a building isn't enough. That's why it does start with our relationship with God and forgiveness and right relationship with Him, but then it proceeds and is sustained by this Word that is in our hand. That's what we're going to talk about in more detail now for the rest of our time here. i going to look at a few different things, go deeper, and think about how important it is that this Word now enters the picture in this renewal of, this, of the kingdom. Of Jerusalem. First, let's talk about this, the the surprising existence of Ezra. (laughs) The surprising existence of Ezra. By that, I mean, humanly speaking, it is surprising that someone who was learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and passionate and able to teach that word came from the place where he did. Because Ezra was born and raised in Babylonia, in the land of exile, the land of idol worship, the land of pagan religion. That's where his parents were also born and raised, and his parents and their parents also. You don't notice this timeline as you read through Ezra, but if you put the pieces together with some research, you learn that... By the time Ezra went to Jerusalem, the Jews had been in captivity in Babylon for 140 years. 140 years. So that's about 60 years of complete removal from Jerusalem. And then about 20 more years of returning and rebuilding the temple. And then another 60 years that passed in between chapter 6 and 7. In between chapters 6 and 7 are the events of the book of Esther. King Ahasuerus, that's Artaxerxes' dad. When he was ruler, all the events of, of Esther happened, including the thwarted attempt at, of Haman to annihilate every Jew in the, in the whole Persian Empire. That all happened between chapter 6 and 7. 140 years have gone by since Jerusalem was destroyed and people went into exile and Ezra was born and raised in Babylon in this place that was sometimes deadly hostile to faith and where the Jews were the small minority religion surrounded by paganism. And yet after 140 years of being in that environment, outsteps a man who is learned in the commandments of the Lord, who knows his Bible, and he's passionate about living by it and passionate to teach it, and to boot, he has the king's permission to do it, his endorsement. That's surprising. It wouldn't be so surprising if it was in... Israel all these years, but in Babylon, that's surprising. It's also encouraging, because isn't it possible for us to assume that genuine commitment to God and to His Word cannot thrive in an environment of unbelief, in an environment of opposition to faith? In an environment where Christianity seems to be on the decline and secularism is on the rise. Don't we just assume the church is really in trouble? Have you ever as a parent thought, I'm afraid of what kind of world my kids are going to grow up in? I'm afraid that there will be too much pressure, too much secular influence for them to, be, to grow up and be rooted and built up in Christ and abounding in thanksgiving, uh, to quote from Colossians 2.6. I just don't know how my kids are going to make it in this world. I haven't checked the numbers lately, but my generation claimed to be about 40% believers, professing believers in Christ. The teens and 20s generation, that number is more like 4%. When we were in uh, Ireland on our vacation, we connected with a pastor in Dublin, and he estimated that in the Republic of Ireland, the number of real Christians is probably 1%. And that's from a country that has had Christianity since 400s A.D. You can go there, you can see all these old, massive old churches, but they're all old because now nobody goes into them. In that kind of environment, we can think, oh no, the church is in trouble. My kids are in trouble. How can faith exist? It doesn't look like it can. Our kids have no shot. The church has no shot at enduring. But the existence of Ezra argues against that. Because above secular culture, Above hostility to faith in Christ is the God who preserves for himself a remnant chosen by grace. That's Romans 11.5. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus will have the prize for which he died, which is the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation. That is guaranteed. and Nobody can stop it. Babylon could not crush faith. Babylon could not prevent an Ezra (laughs) from coming and not only being learned, but being equipped and paid to go and teach God's Word to God's people. Because God is in charge of everything. So let's not be afraid. Let's not be cynical. Let's not lose hope. God is is, is in control. He has the power to keep his people. That's the first lesson from this. This unsurprising entrance of Ezra. learned it in the scriptures. Now let's consider the amazing book that's in Ezra's hand. As we read, Ezra was sent to Jerusalem with the law of your God, which is in your hand. He came to the town, not just bearing silver and gold and vessels for the temple. Those were important. But he came with a book. In his hand, more accurately, the scrolls containing the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he brought that with him. That's what's considered the law when you read about the law in Scripture, usually. Now, that's something that up until now we haven't seen in the book of Ezra. They had a temple, we know that but so far as we know, they had no book. Remember that in early times, most people never had a copy of the Scriptures. They were kept under lock and key in the temple or later on in the synagogue, Uh, but nobody had these. Most people couldn't even read. There was very few copies of it at all. In fact, during the reign of King Josiah, which is the last good reign right before Israel was sent into exile, During Josiah's reign, um, it seemed the scriptures had disappeared from public life entirely. Josiah, uh, he was the good king after many bad kings, and he ordered that Solomon's temple be cleaned up and repaired because it hadn't been maintained very well. And so while people are in there maintaining or cleaning it up, uh, one of the workers found a book. Let me quote from 2 Kings 22. Here's how it went down. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And he said, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah, considering the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. That was the 18th year of King Josiah's reign, and not even he had a copy of the scriptures. And nobody seemed to have one. They had to go digging around in the temple to find this thing, and they weren't looking for it. They didn't even expect it to be there. When they found it, they didn't know what it was exactly. It was a book, except that the high priest knew what it was, and they read it to Josiah, and when he hears it, he's cut to the heart because now he understands this is why we have fallen as a people. This is why the glory days are gone because we have neglected what's in this book. We haven't cared at all about what God said to us. We drifted away and we figured out our own way, and it all crumbled down around us. Now I get it. This is the source of everything. We despised God's book. We left it sitting in a box somewhere, collecting dust. But 140 years later... 200 years after Josiah, Ezra comes back from Babylon with the book. (laughs) Why? Because the good hand of the Lord was on us. When the hand of God is on us for good, he gives us his word. Because God's word, as Deuteronomy 32 says, is not an idle word for you. It is your life. All of Israel's troubles came from the fact that they stopped caring what was in it. That's where so many of our troubles come from. God didn't give up on His people, though. His good hand was upon all who seek Him, so He brought it back with Ezra, a man who studied it, who knew it backwards and forwards. He was commissioned to teach it by the king. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of God that is in your hand, this Law is his wisdom. Appoint magistrates and judges and so on and teach them. Ensure that this law gets worked into the society because we don't want, you don't want to repeat the past. That wasn't just the king's idea. That was God putting that idea into his head because God is merciful and gracious. God is abounding in steadfast love. God keeps pursuing us even when we stop caring, even when we let the Bible collect dust on the shelf. He's still coming after us. We have one of these. (laughs) That's the proof that He's coming after us, that He wants us to thrive. This book is your life. I want you to have life. I want you to be renewed. I want you to have strength for every day. I want you to have courage to to move forward when things are against you. I want you to to be rooted, to understand what's going on and to still have hope. I want you to know me. I want you to know the life that comes from me. I'm pursuing you. Here it is. Here it is. God is so good to us. This book is life because it explains everything that's important. Why are we here in the first place? It's because we have a God who overflows with joy and he wanted to share that with people that he was going to make in his image. And explains why it's so hard to live in this world because we we go against his word. <laughs> and that's never going to work. <laughs> He who is the source of life, we start to cut ourselves off from Him. The only result is death. That's where the trajectory goes. It explains that. This word explains why why life is so hard. Sin, our sin. It explains the solution to the sadness, to the suffering, to the guilt that we have. It is that God Himself comes into this world in the person of Jesus Christ and bears the blame for our sins, bears the punishment for our sins. And if we trust in Him as Savior, He says, I forgive you, and He puts His Spirit in us, and we get new life, and we have promises galore, and we have a future and a hope. That's all in in here. And it gives us His wisdom to live each day and hope above all the problems, hope of an eternal life, hope of a resurrection. We have that book because God's pursuing us with His love. So take advantage of it, (laughs) take up and read, and ask God to make it clear to you. I always pray Psalm 119, 18, when I have my devotions, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Like, I need it, open my eyes, give me eyes to see the wonderful things here. There are wonderful things to see in his law, in his word. Now, one caveat, we are not to do this completely alone in an isolation from other believers. There's a rhyme I once heard that highlights a not-so-helpful tendency we have when it's just me and my Bible and no other Christians around or nobody else speaking into my life. The rhyme was, wonderful things in Scripture I see, things that were put there by you and by me. In other words, we stick our own ideas in there, things that aren't really there. We have our biases. We have our influences. We have our fears. We have bad ideas in our heads if we're just by ourselves. And that's why the Lord has provided something else alongside of his word when the good hand of our Lord is on us, and that is teachers, And that's the last observation we'll make from the passage. God's provision for the teaching of His Word. I've already mentioned Ezra's commission to teach the law of God of heaven, as Artaxerxes called it in verse 21. So Ezra's going to be the point person to ensure that God's law is made known, that it governs the life of the community. So he comes to teach. But God didn't just send a book He sent Ezra, the teacher who's going to make sure that that book gets taught, and as we'll see, he also sent a whole bunch more teachers. So we are called to meditate and read the scriptures by ourselves, but but by God's Spirit, uh, he also gives us people with a gift of teaching, people like Ezra who have studied it, who are learned in the commandments, who are apt to teach. And that is part of what we need to understand that word that is our life and to do it. And so that's what we have. That's what God is doing in chapters 7 and 8. He's sending Ezra and He's sending a bunch of people who are also going to be teachers. So we'll just have to bounce around a little bit and and see this. Ezra is the foremost example of the teacher. But as we keep reading, we see a couple more things in uh, in this letter. Um, starting in verse, seven, verse uh, chapter 7, verse 24, uh, Artaxerxes makes this point. He says, We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. So all these people that, that the, the king is saying, I want them to be going with you, Ezra, and the, some of them are already there, but we're going to send some more. We're going to have all these people who are worship, who are serving at the temple, right? But he mentions Levites in that list. Um, Levites were temple servants. They did a lot of things in the temple, but they were also teachers. That was one of their responsibilities. In fact, Ezra himself is a Levite. He is a descendant of Aaron, and Aaron was a Levite. And so in the mix, you've got all these people that God is going to fund to be teachers. I mean, you read that that notification, no taxes on any of these guys? I mean, that's like government-sponsored religion. Like, This is tax-exempt clergy. That's what that's what the king is doing, and not only is he like exempting them from all taxes, but he's sending them a whole pile of money to buy everything they need to to do the stuff that has to happen in the worship life of the of Israel. Um, and if there's anything left over, use that however you want. I mean, this is like the guy like writing a big fat check to pay the ministry bills of the church. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, like. We take all of our, so our deacons take all of our expenses, and they just send that to the government, and then we, we just get paid for. That sounds pretty good to me. I think we'd like that, right? Um, but before we think about that as a vision of how things should be, we have to look at ver- uh, chapters 9 and 10, because there we find out that money isn't the issue, it's the human heart. It doesn't matter if you have a temple. It doesn't matter if you have a ton of money if your heart is wrong. And so we're going to see what what happens in 9 and 10. But Artaxerxes is like funding it. He's funding the ministry in Jerusalem. And part of that funding is teachers. Teachers who are Levites. Now, that becomes a very interesting thing when you look at chapter 8 because... Um, in chapter 8, we learn about the Levites' journey to Jerusalem. It wasn't exactly the way we might have expected. So Ezra gets the, uh, the king's letter, just a little bit of a summary of chapter 8. He gets the king's letter, he gathers the money, he gathers the vessels, and about 1,500 other men plus their families to come with him. Everybody who responds to the king's invitation at the beginning of the letter The invitation was any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. So here's another opportunity to get out of Babylon, to get out of the land of exile And specifically, Levites are mentioned. All you Levites can go to Jerusalem. I'll fund the journey. I'll fund your ministry so that you can teach the people the law of God and keep the temple worship going. Uh, Who could say no to that, right? But here's what happened in chapter 8, verse 15. Ezra says, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. So they never volunteered. (laughs) They had their way paid. They could leave. They could go back. None of them said, yeah, I'll do it. They stayed home. I love how the Bible is so realistic. Isn't it just human nature to drag our feet when we know that there's something to do, that we should do, that we can do, but we just don't want to do it for some reason? Ministry opportunities are in front of us. There's a chance to do good, a ready-made opportunity to make a difference, but there can be this inertia. You know, I just don't feel like it. Uh, It's just going to be too hard. It just doesn't fit into the plans that I've made for my life. Those are can be reasons that we walk away from open doors that the Lord wants us to walk through. But I like the fact, too, that the Lord's plan isn't stopped by our reluctance and nor by theirs. In this case, God wouldn't be denied getting His word into the lives of the people. He wouldn't be denied getting His teachers of the law to Jerusalem because Ezra... If you keep reading, he gets some people involved, some key people. He tells them what to say. They go on a recruiting mission, and they end up gathering about 260 Levites, and they're going to go with them on the trip. God will have his teachers <laughs> because God's hand is for good on his people, and part of that good is you need to know what's in my word. So he's going to get it done. And then after a thousand-mile journey that took four months, they all get there. That's chapter 8. God's committed to His Word, and He's committed to getting it into our lives through called and equipped teachers. Now, in the church, that begins with the pastors. Doesn't end there, but it begins there. We're charged with the care for the flock and the one requirement for elders and pastors that's not a character issue is the ability to teach. Pastors must be able to teach. Why? Because God's Word is how God gets that life into us, that day-by-day wisdom that we need, that encouragement that we need, that renewal that we need. It comes through His Word. And so He says, I'm going to make sure that when the church gets built, and you know, a thousand years later or so after Ezra or whatever, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that, that when that structure happens, it's got teachers who are like essential to it. That they will be there. They will be able to teach, they will be called, they will be equipped, they will be like Ezra, because I wanna make sure my people are under a steady diet of my word. Because I love my people and this is how they're going to experience joy and strength and comfort and guidance and challenge. This is how they're going to grow. This is how they're going to know what to do with their lives. This is what's going to make them different from everybody else who's going their own way. And God from the eternity has decided, I will make sure my word has a central place and people that can teach it because he loves us. So we're always going to need more pastors. Sometimes they might need prodding, like the Levites. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to do it. I was called. I know it was my job, but you know, I like it here. Uh, sometimes we need prodding. I needed prodding. I was the last one to, to say yes. You know, Mary was already on board before my pastor was already on board before I changed jobs and became a pastor. Like I was like I was the one dragging my feet. So we're always looking to raise up more. And so we're investing in anybody who has a hunger for God and an ability to teach and lead. And so some of you, you already know who you are. You meet with us on an ongoing basis. If, it's, if you're not one who's doing that now and you're hungry to, to know God, to be evaluated, you might have a thinking in your life that I think I'm supposed to do something with this in teaching. Come and see one of us elders because we're always raising up people. One of the joys I have is I'm on the ordination committee for the West Region of Churches, and I get to actually test all the people that God is raising up, all the guys that he's raising up for pastoral ministry. And yeah, we've we've flunked a couple guys. (laughs) We don't just give them a rubber stamp. We make them pass. Um, But so many of them have just been like on fire, knowledgeable knocked it out of the park, ready to go. And that's God's goodness to us, that he keeps on raising up more teachers, more pastors for his church because he loves us. So let's just close with this. I want to connect this whole thing to Christ. So Ezra is this surprising expert in God's word whom God sent to Jerusalem to renew his people through teaching. And that points us to the greater Ezra, who is Jesus. Because there's no one more surprising that has been sent into our world than God in human flesh, <laughs> born of a virgin. That is Jesus. And every, the very author of Scripture came into this world, not with a book, but as the book. <laughs> the Word made flesh. The author of the book with us, to renew us. And the Father sent Jesus into the world to do that, to revive us, to to dignify our lives, to renovate us from the inside out, to give us a future and a hope, to point us to the way and show us the way of salvation and to make that way of salvation by dying on the cross. God's good hand is on us this morning. Those of you who are in Christ, especially, he has already raised up the greater Ezra to bring us to God. Personally, relationally, with knowledge of who he is, ever-growing knowledge by the Holy Spirit, he's come and done that for us. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. So believe that, friends. Give yourselves to his word and to His teaching in the context of the local church so that we're not just all following our own idea and then follow what God says. It is no idle word for us. It is our life. Let's pray. We thank You, Lord, that Your hand is for good on us today. The fact that we're here, that we have a Bible, that we have... People you've appointed to teach that Bible. The fact that your Holy Spirit is here to give us understanding because apart from Him we wouldn't know. All of that is your grace and mercy to us. We are more blessed than even those were back in the day, back in Ezra's day. Because now we have the Word with us, among us, within us, teaching us, leading us rescuing us, saving us, renovating us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and sing in response.